Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. America has been at war for close to 15 years in Afghanistan. A full-blown war was fought in Iraq for almost a decade. Hundreds of thousands of American men and women witnessed combat firsthand. Many came back with physical scars, and many more were wounded mentally. According to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, an average of 20 veterans are dying by suicide every day. A film called Thank You for Your Service will be shown at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center tomorrow that follows four Iraq War veterans and their struggles. Joining us is the film's director, Tom Donahue. Mr. Donahue, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Also, Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Gary Wynn is the Assistant Chief of Psychiatry at the Department of Defense's Medical School. Colonel Wynn, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. If you have a question or a comment, a lot of uh, mental health issues having to do with veterans, especially combat veterans, during this program, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. Tom Donahue, let me start with you. How did this film come mm-hmm. to be? What was the idea behind making it? I, uh, a family foundation approached me. They, uh, Jerry Sprayreagan was the head of it. And he forwarded me an op-ed by Chris Christoph in the New York Times, and that was, and it was entitled "A Veteran's Death, A Nation's Shame," and it was about the suicide epidemic. And there was a line that struck him in that op-ed that really set him off, and that was that in 2012, more service people died by suicide than died in combat, and he found that outrageous. So, forwarded it to me and said, "I will finance a documentary if you." if you want to look into this and try to kind of get to the bottom or figure out why this is happening. So I, I agreed. I had a, a best friend who hanged himself in his dorm room. He was from a military family when we were both 21. And uh, also my father was a veteran just out of World War II. So it, the, uh, the issue really, really spoke to me. Yeah, so you had a, a personal connection to it. You know, that I think that, that is worth highlighting a little bit more, what you just said, of what prompted the, the film, is that more veterans died of suicide than actually died in combat. That's an incredible statement, incredible statistic. Yeah, agreed. You know, it, it says, you know, we're, all, we're battling terrorism, but we have an even bigger enemy within the military, and that is suicide. Now, describe what is in the documentary. Uh, The documentary weaves the stories of four veterans, uh, all coincidentally from the Iraq War, although one served three tours in both Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, it it interweaves them with a systemic investigation using the interviews of uh, Admiral Mullen, General Petraeus, Robert Gates, the Defense Secretary, uh, and, and many other generals, colonels, et cetera, Colonel Wilkerson, Colonel uh, Dave Sutherland, to kind of get to the bottom of what the issues were and are and how they kind of continue to repeat themselves and why. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, What are some of uh, the common themes? What are some of the challenges that uh, today's combat veterans are facing? Well, the film actually takes a look at, at mental health policy within the military itself. And what I see there is a lot of neglect based on a lack of accountability. So there is no actual core set up where there is a single chain of command so that behavioral health psychologists, you know, psychiatry specialists are all under one chain of command. So if there is a problem at Walter Reed Hospital, the Surgeon General's head rolls. If there's a suicide epidemic in the military, there's nobody's head who rolls. 
uh, and I would love Dr. Wynn to speak to that as well. Well, the, doc- the other issue is once you oh, let me just quickly finish. Okay. Once 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 you have this neglect within the military and you can't get the help you need, or you're stigmatized from talking about the issue, then you get out, and there is a major problem in reintegration. So one of my stories is uh, Phil Straub, who is a, a Marine who witnessed the death of five of his friends during the Second Battle of Fallujah. He was sent home after being told by his commanding officer, good luck, son, three months later, and uh, went home and no reintegration, no sense of this is what you're going to be facing. These are the issues that are going to come up for you. And we trace in the film how it basically destroyed his marriage. So, uh, Dr. Wynn, uh, Colonel Wynn, uh, talk about that a little bit more. Uh, as uh, Tom just described, no chain of command, and maybe no is big of an exaggeration, but basically that it, it is not as, uh, probably as uh, we didn't deal with it as well as what we would if there was a physical injury, a physical wound. Talk about uh, what is in place right now for those returning veterans. Well, I think the, the important thing to to remember here is that uh, obviously we are all interested in the same thing and, and very much appreciate Tom's dedication to the idea that we need to make the American public aware that we need to do more and better for our men and women who serve uh, bravely for our country overseas and do the, everything we can when they come back. Um, you know, I, I can't speak, given my current level, to the, the policies in regards to chain of command and DOD-level policy. Um, I, I think rather than focus on who, who the chain of command should be, the question is how do we get better and, and more specific care to the service members who are returning? We know that there is a mental health need out there. We know that there are service members who have mental health care issues that we need to do more and better about. Uh, we are very aware of that and very dedicated to the idea that we can improve this. Um, you know, we're trying with a, a variety of research initiatives as well as programmatic initiatives, all in an effort to, to solve the problem that Tom speaks to. Uh, whether or not changing the military health care system to a behavioral health core or not, I can't speak to. I'm I'm not a, a knowledgeable about whether that would would solve the the problem. I can say that the the issue for me is getting more providers and more care. Uh, to the service member. All right. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about solutions or uh, because the film does address that. Uh, you know, what are some of the recommendations, some of the things that could be done? But let's talk about uh, currently what combat veterans returning from Afghanistan and Iraq are facing. Uh, Colonel Wynn, give me a sense of some of uh, the mental health issues that these combat veterans are facing. Sure. So when when combat veterans are returning uh, home to the states, uh, there is a portion of them, uh, uh, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20 percent of folks, depending on which uh, research study you've looked at or which investigation um, we're reporting on, uh, in terms of having anxiety, sleep difficulties, uh, some increase in substance use and misuse, as well as risk-taking behaviors in general, uh, all have been shown to to have been increased for a portion of the returning combat veterans. Why? Do we know? Uh, That is a very complex question. I know, it's one word. (laughs) I know, it's one word. One word, uh, a long time. Um, 
we don't know. Uh, we don't really know. We, we, we have ideas. We have thoughts. We have research hypotheses. We have some of the biggest studies uh, ever undertaken regarding combat veterans underway that will hopefully uh, help elucidate this uh, issue as to what changes for the service member from before to after. Um, what are the exposures? Um, what kinds of exposures result in in these changes in their mental health states when they come back. Uh, what are we not doing? What can we do better? What are we doing that, that isn't, isn't resulting in what we want? Because what we want is we want soldiers and service members, sailors, airmen, Marines, to come back and get reintegrated into life, you know, either being in the military or after they come out and become productive citizens of the United States, and to continue to be productive citizens of the United States. Yeah, we're going to talk. Well, well, I would argue that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I would ahead, argue Tom. that that what they go through is an entirely what they have is an entirely natural reaction to to incredibly uh, they basically go in as 18 or 19 year old kids who've been living in a very isolated country called the United States of America they're given a weapon and they they go out and they see and and sometimes have to do horrific things then they come home and they don't have the access to the services or the knowledge they need to be able to cope with what they've seen and that can lead to Drinking to other forms of self-medication, et cetera. Uh, so, so I don't know if you can say, you know, we don't know why this is. I think, I think, on that sense, it's very kind of obvious what happens, and that they're not given the care needed to return home in a way that's psychologically safe for them. Tom, you're well, and uh, just to speak, I'm, I'm a researcher, so I, I never say anything until it's confirmed in a research study. I, I don't disagree with that as a hypothesis as to what may tra- be transpiring. We know that the service member. I was a clinician for a long time before moving into the research world and took care of a lot of folks. There are a lot of really terrible things that people go through, and your movie does a very nice job of walking people through a, a particularly horrific experience. I won't disagree with what you say, Tom, at all. I just, again, from a research perspective, we don't know no, neuropsychiatrically. We don't know what changes in the brain happen. We know about the experiences for sure, but, you know, that that's how, and then how do we intervene as well? So that, that's some of the questions that we're Right, and sometimes sometimes the reactions aren't extreme. They're, it's simply uh, the ability to cope. Right. Well, let's talk right. about sometimes that. they're very basic stuff like you know just difficulty yeah. sleeping, you know, or or just feeling distant from your family when you return. Uh, that goes away naturally. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, there's a lot left to understand, and we're we're definitely trying to to get our hands around that. I want to talk about. Uh... PTSD in just a moment, and also a little bit about history. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The film is called Thank You for Your Service. It follows four veterans of the Iraq War, talks about the challenges they face, especially especially in the mental health area. It will be shown at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center in Carmel tomorrow. Uh, go to WITF.org, and uh, there is information on the schedule. And uh, there is a panel discussion afterwards, which is probably very important. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, was conveyed to me is that... Uh, any veteran, any combat veteran especially, uh, would be uh, especially interested in seeing this film and participating in the panel discussion afterwards. And uh, so I think, uh, you know, if you are in that situation, this is something that you probably uh, would uh, appreciate and uh, maybe can help you even a little bit. Uh, that is t- tomorrow at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Our guest, Tom Donahue, is director of the film Thank You for Your Service and Lieutenant Colonel 
Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Gary Wynn, Assistant Chief of Psychiatry at the Department of Defense's Medical School. Our phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number 1-800-729-7532 if you have a question or a comment. All right, a couple different things. I want to start a little bit with history. Uh, Tom, you mentioned that uh, your father was a World War II vet. Um, You know, we probably only started hearing about the the mental health aspects of how uh, there were mental scars after the Vietnam War. We didn't hear very much uh, from veterans in World War II or those who were veterans in Korea. Did your father ever talk to you about, um, you know, why it was different or uh, if, you know, some of his colleagues suffered through the same thing after World War II? Well, I just to clarify, he was, he was a veteran out of World War II, so he was transporting German prisoners oh, from okay. okay. to 1950. So he actually missed the war and the Korean War that followed. Okay. Okay. Uh, so he, he certainly never spoke about it and actually really, really glorified it. <clears throat> he glorified the military so much that I actually I tried to get into the ROTC, uh, but because of my asthma, I was not able to, to join the Navy. Uh, so, but I guess I think maybe... My que- uh, well, my question said, is, Tom, then about yeah. history, is there, there probably are many people asking, what's different today than in past wars? Right. Well, I think the difference is, is we do have more knowledge of what's happening, and we are, we are speaking about it more. I don't think there's any difference in terms of the neuropsychiatric, the, the level of neuropsychiatric trauma that happened on the battlefield. Uh, out of the, say, 16 million men that served in World War II, about 800,000 were taken off the battlefield as neuropsychiatric. It was never talked about. And what you ended up having is the Mad Men generation, where they self medicated with alcohol while they worked, they beat their wives. They strangled them in the dark. Nobody knew why. Nobody necessarily knew it was connected to their wartime experiences. This has happened all the way back to the Revolutionary War. Yeah, it used to be called, a, you know, a soldier was shell-shocked or had uh, battlefield Combat. fatigue or something like that. Operational uh, exhaustion. Right. Ex- exactly. And, uh, you know, so... But then I, I think the Vietnam veterans were the most vocal about it and actually got together and and were very innovative in the way they dealt with it. They actually, I don't know if they created group therapy, but they developed the idea of, of sitting around together and really, really talking about it. Although I would argue that after World War II, they had a three-month period where they would come back to the United States by boat, especially in the Pacific Theater. And they would have those three months to kind of get together and to bond and, uh, and to be able to work out a lot of and talk about a lot of their issues. That these guys today, when they come home, they don't have that kind of uh, community to be able to fall back on. Mm. Uh, Dr. Wynn, let me ask you about, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be talking throughout the, the next 15 minutes or so about uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, that's, you know, the diagnosis that we hear most often when uh, there, are, there are veterans out there who are suffering uh, mentally after their combat service. First of all, what is PTSD? And I guess this goes back to you know, my earlier question of why that I don't think you can answer, but is it different in every person that what triggers it? Um, yeah, so that's an inter- interesting and, and very complicated question. Um, PTSD has been described in a number of different ways, including a, a normal response to an abnormal experience, uh, to a um, to, to the, the un- 
unexpected response of, to a traumatic experience. Uh, it's been described a number of ways. What it is is um, a, a difficulty coping uh, with the experience that someone's gone through, a particularly traumatic experience. And uh, I personally like the idea that it's a failure to forget. And I don't mean failure in a, a negative way about the person mm. in, individually, but, but the, the brain continues to focus on this experience and to, to, to go over it again and again, to have flashbacks, to have nightmares, to avoid stimulus that, that would result in, in stimulating those memories. So they avoid going out into crowds or they avoid being near places that have you know, uh, uh, dumpsters that are closing because it sounds like some kind of explosion going up. So it, it's a myriad cluster of symptoms. What's that? I think so. Your brain hasn't entirely processed such an intense experience. Right, exactly. And, and, and we call it the case of failure to extinguish. So the normal process for all of us as humans is that we learn things and then we forget things throughout the course of our lives um, as we don't need things. And, and we, we, have, we are failing to unlearn, if you will. We can't, these folks can't get rid of this. Uh, uh, experience of trauma. Do you have any opinions on uh, what's different with today's returning combat veteran or the Vietnam veteran as opposed to the Korean veteran, Korean War veteran, or World War II veteran? I think part of what Tom says is, is spot on, is that, that we're talking about it more, which I think is great. I mean, I really do think it's great. We're talking about it more. We're learning about it more. You, know, you go back to that generation, and my grandfather was in World War II, my brother uh, currently serves and uh, was in the uh, the conflicts over in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so I'm I'm fairly familiar and have a long military family history as well. So it, they just didn't talk about it. You know, I didn't learn about my grandfather's experiences in World War II until he was on his deathbed. Um, you mm-hmm. don't talk about it. That was always the way. The Vietnam vets changed it. They changed it for us in a really great way. Now they had a terrible experience upon coming back home for a lot of different reasons that you know, I'm not a particular expert on from a societal perspective. But still, we're talking about it more. I think that's the thing. You go back to the Civil War, we had soldiers' heart. You go to World War One, you have battle shock and, and battle fatigue, shell shock. There's been a name for it throughout history. We're just starting to talk about it, research it, and understand it from a neuropsychiatric perspective nowadays. Was it looked as looked upon as a weakness? That, uh, you know, that World War II generation you talked about, and so many times I've heard of World War II veterans who, just like you described, they never talked about their service, or they talked about it all the time, but there were some who never talked about it, that uh, they didn't tell their stories or the things that they saw, but... I mean, I got the sense, especially, and again, once we started talking about PTSD in Vietnam, that somehow that these service people were looked upon as being weaker than the previous generation because they had suffered this way. Well, I don't think it's just uh, that. A, I think there was a sense by the greatest generation sorry, that they had lost the war. Uh, so I think, I think there was a political context there that's very different from the, the political context today. They, they came back in many ways as pariahs back to their society. And that wasn't so much because they were traumatized. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, uh, Colonel Wynn, what were you going to say? Uh, I was going to say, I think, I think the other thing to remember is that there, there were institutions that facilitated people talking about it. We've had VFWs and other organizations where these, these returning vets would go talk to each other, you know, and I've had the privilege on a couple of occasions to go and speak to some of these
these groups, which you know primarily include Vietnam veterans these days, but some of them will talk about you know the WW2 folks talking about their experiences. Uh, and I often wonder whether my grandfather, you know, when when he went to the VFW, would talk to his friends at the VFW about his experiences, but not to his family for some of the reasons we're talking about. So what you're, t- I, I keep hearing this over and over just in discussing with, with the two of you, talking about the experiences, uh, if, if not a cure, at least a, a step in the right direction. Is that accurate? I'm a psychiatrist, so obviously I believe in therapy. <laughs> so, yes, uh, obviously we, we think that there's a big component to talking about experiences, to socializing it, to getting support from loved ones, family, friends, and others, uh, to normalize the experience. Uh, again, not to say that it wasn't traumatic, but to, to, to put it in the right frame of frame in the right context so that so that people can integrate it into who they are and, and move forward with their lives in a, in a productive manner that, that's meaningful for them. All right, let's take some phone calls. Let's go to Audrey in Harrisburg. Audrey, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Uh, I wanted to comment on how it's being uh, handled today. The VA still requires veterans who are filing for PTSD to prove stressors, and I find it particularly disturbing that we're still focusing on that because being in a combat zone is stressful by itself, and they're still forcing a veteran to have to specify what was the particular stressful thing, and it's time that the VA stops it and makes it easier for veterans to file for PTSD. Um, I am a Vietnam veteran, and I was a non-combatant, and I could never file for PTSD because during my period of time, Vietnam veterans originally had to prove that they actually engaged in two specific stressful situations in which they engaged the enemy. That has changed, thank goodness, because of the feedback from the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. Because the most stressful situation is what you see, and when you are in helpless situations, when you're under rocket and mortar attacks, or when you have to worry about driving back the road that you just came through and it was clear, and now you have to be concerned that there are IEDs in it. So uh, those are my comments, and I comment, I compliment Tom on the film that he's done, and I would love to have an opportunity to see the film, and uh, thank you for this discussion. It goes a long way. I even have Vietnam vets today that question how come so many of the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans have PTSD. Mm. So discussion is exactly what we need. Audrey, thank you very much for your service, and thank you for your phone call. You raised some really good points. Thank you. Uh, Gentlemen, the point she brings up, uh, what she was just talking about, uh, of having to prove PTSD, uh, Dr. Wynn, I imagine that is not the easiest thing to do. Maybe there are there are some textbook cases you can look at someone and say, oh, that you know that person uh, obviously has uh, had has some mental health issues, PTSD. But from what Audrey describes, it sounds like you know this wasn't an easy diagnosis. 
Well, I, I will speak to what I know of the DOD. I, I, I don't actively work in the VA. I work for the DOD, so I can't speak to their policies particularly. Um, in the Department of Defense, we do an evaluation, and, and we, we, we believe the service member at face value. So, you know, the expectation for providers is that when a service member walks in the door, they're not lying to you. If they tell you they had an experience, they had an experience. Um, so that I and you know it may be that things have changed over the past 30 years, and it sounds like based on on her experience, things have, and that's great, and that's exactly what we're looking for. You know, that's what, exactly what the DoD and others are interested in. How do we improve? How do we get better? How do we destigmatize things? How do we remove barriers to care? Are we perfect? Not yet, but I tell you what, I, I love the dedication I see amongst my compatriots in the military moving this thing forward. Tom, that is one of the things that's addressed in the film is the barriers, the challenges that the four veterans that you follow face, correct? Yes, very much so. And what are some of those uh, barriers? I, I, I would completely agree with Dr. Wynn that everyone wants to solve this issue and the DOD is at the forefront of trying to solve this issue except on the level of trying to, and I know you can't speak to this, uh, trying to affect and change the bureaucracy so that it doesn't it doesn't become a black hole of neglect. It's like it, there's a lot of great people trying to do great work, but if there's not a single chain of command for behavioral health specialists and no one held accountable, then there will there will be this national reset. So the next time we go to war, it will happen again, no matter how much knowledge we've we've had, we've learned over the last two hundred years. It will just keep happening. That, that's my biggest argument with the film. All right, let's uh, go to Randy and Red Lion. Randy, you're on the air. Hi, thanks a lot. Yes. Um, my, I guess my first comment is certified peer support specialist. Um, I am recovering from a mental health diagnosis myself. And recently, back in February it would be, I um, completed a course uh, through Recovery Innovations. And it is uh, basically it's a peer like myself who has a mental health diagnosis working with someone else who wants to cope, learn, live normally with a mental health diagnosis. Uh, and I think this could probably work with, uh, with the military as well um, because there are people out there, like, like your, your, uh, your doctor was saying, uh, group therapy is awesome. Uh, but one-to-one, I think, because they have similar experiences, uh, nobody's all going to have the same experience, but if they have similar experiences, um, one-to-one help can be a lot, lot more effective. Hey, thank you very much for your call. Uh, Dr. Wynn, what about that? Uh, is there anything in place for, like, peer uh, counseling? Uh, I'm sure there are group, there's, there are group uh, sessions, that kind of thing. But what he describes, is that being done now? Well, I would, I would definitely say the groups are definitely there, and that, that's been a, a, a big uh, help, I think, to a lot of service members is, is what he's talking about, that shared experiences, that, that trust that they have. Uh, with uh, the individuals they're speaking about, the, the the ability to understand, gosh, this is what I went through, and it's not that dissimilar. And again, like you said, no one has the same experience exactly, but the ability to, to connect in a way that's different uh, for our men and women in uniform who've served overseas in combat environments compared to, say, some other folks. Um, we don't have it as a specific program where people see folks who already have served. Uh, some of that would be the 
difficulty in having enough providers who would have combat experience. There just aren't enough. So uh, there are some limitations there, and because of those limitations, we do a, a combination of things. But I, I completely agree in sense of getting support, contacting folks who have similar experiences, connecting to the veterans groups, getting, again, VFWs and, and all these really wonderful support groups out there, as well as all these great nonprofits who are doing great things like taking folks on fly fishing trips and whitewater rafting and outward adventures. And some of that's brought up in the movie. And, again, those are all wonderful things. Uh, and and I, I fully support the idea that uh, folks engage in those. You know, we have said, and this is something that has changed in the past uh, uh, 30, 40 years, but especially during Afghanistan and Iraq. Almost every time we talk about uh, people in the military, we say men and women. Uh, Dr. Wynn, have you seen any difference with women veterans returning from Afghanistan and uh, and, and Iraq? Difference with, with, uh, with male? Difference with, in terms of PTSD? Yes. Um not particularly, no. I mean, there's there's some reports of, of slight differences in, in population in terms of uh, numbers of men or women who have PTSD, but we, we think a lot of that is presentation, you know, whether you know, maybe men are, are drinking more rather than expressing their emotional state more. Um, so there's a lot of factors that go into this idea that there's a, a difference between men and women in terms of PTSD. So I honestly don't think there's a big difference between the two groups. Uh, it has more to do with what were your exposures while you were in in the combat zone. Um, what was your support like when you got back to the states? Uh, what what's your uh, what what other issues do you have going on in your life? So yeah. I think that's more the issue rather than this specific. Uh, male versus female issue when it comes to PTSD. Let's take a phone call now from Bella in Carlisle. Bella, you're on the air. Uh, good morning. Good morning. My my son was uh, in Iraq three times, and uh, when he came home, he was diagnosed uh, with PTSD. Now, he's come a long way, and I think it's because of all the support, you know, and his friends and whatnot. But how do you folks... The challenge is getting somebody back to the place that they perceive was what gave them PTSD to begin with. Do you understand what I'm saying? Dr. Wynn? Um, I'm going to need a little bit more, I'd say. So are you saying how do you get back to the place they were before their traumatic experience? No, I'm just saying for you folks, the challenge has got to be or is the challenge getting people with PTSD to come in and be treated and help oh, yes. when they okay, perceive yes. the PTSD stemming from their experience with the military. Yes, yes. So, so that is, that is a, a great concern for us is how do we make sure everyone who needs care uh, comes in and gets care. And I can tell you we've got a number of programs ongoing trying to reach out to folks and make sure folks know that services are available, uh, meet people where they are rather than expect them to come to the clinics and to the hospitals. How do we push psychological services out into the units and out with the soldiers and sailors and servicemen? Um, you know, that's, the, that's where we're headed and where we're thinking. So I, I very much 
um, understand your point, and, and, and that's a shift we've made over the last probably eight to ten years where we're really moving mental health assets out into uh, the units to support them directly. Bella, did your son, uh, did he seek help? Help? No, no, not really. He didn't. No. How was no, how, no. how, how he diagnosed? When, Whenever, I guess, you come back and then you're going to be detached from the military, you have an interview or you go through some sort of procedure where they, you know, talk to you about leaving. And um, he was just, you know, he was, he was rattled by what he had been through and kind of, you know, a particular incident, you know, um, where he had been held over. Uh, the third trip back to Iraq was beyond his contract. And, uh, you know, so the resentment was there, and and uh, I don't think he wanted to go back in mm-hmm. to the place that he perceived gave him the problem to begin with. Hey, hey thank you very much for your uh, call, Bella, and your, your son's service. But, you know, something she brings up, and I'm, I only have a minute or so, but and I'm not going to ask you the two of you to address this, but uh, something to point out is that uh, another difference between Afghanistan and Iraq is those multiple deployments uh, that... You know, in in World War II, you did have veterans who were overseas for three years at a time. Uh, But today, you don't have a draft. You had uh, a small number of, a relatively small number of people who were... uh, who are being deployed multiple times in combat and uh, much more potential to see things that uh, can impact you uh, mentally if you are uh, deployed overseas two, three, four, five times. For more on veterans and mental health, visit WITF's Transforming Health. We're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and Wellspan Health. The movie, the film, the documentary is called Director, or excuse me, thank you for your service. Tom Donahue is the director. Lieutenant Colonel Dr. Gary Wynn is Assistant Chief of Psychiatry at the Department of Defense's Medical School. Thank you both very much for being with us today. Thank you very much. And I will mention again that that is at uh, the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center in Carlisle tomorrow night. Uh, We have information on our website, WITF.org. It is free. That is one of the keys. There is no uh, fee to get in, so it is free. Uh, If you are a combat veteran, I think this is something that uh, you probably would appreciate. If you just want to learn something, I think you can learn a lot from this film. That's uh, tomorrow night at uh, the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center in Carlisle. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. September is Sepsis Awareness Month, and it's dubbed the Silent Killer. It's also believed to be highly underreported. In the United States, there are 250,000 deaths each year from sepsis, but some healthcare providers believe it could be 500,000 deaths a year. More people die from sepsis than breast cancer, prostate cancer, and HIV/AIDS combined. Think about that. Our guest today is Dr. Thomas Stoner. He's the medical director of Community General Osteopathic Hospital, part of the Pinnacle Health System. Dr. Stoner, welcome to the program. 
Scott, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure and, to be here. And, of course, I have to make this disclaimer that if you are a regular listener of Smart Talk, you realize that Pinnacle is one of our uh, our supporters. So I uh, just wanted to point that out as well. All right. That statistic that, uh, I mean, there are a few things there that really stand out, that being underreported by that much, that's one thing. Yes. Um, but the number of deaths... You know, more than breast cancer, prostate cancer, and HIV AIDS combined. Those three things get a lot of attention from the public, from the medical community. There are all kinds of awareness campaigns and uh, to make people, to educate people about them. But sepsis, you know, it's one of those things, silent killer. What's it mean it's the silent killer? Well, Scott, that, that's a great question. And, and I think one of the reasons that sepsis has not received um the publicity that that we feel it should is because uh, it's very sneaky and uh, it can present in a young child or an adult with strep throat who has a high fever, has an elevated heart rate, feels very weak, has pain. Uh, but, But that type of sepsis that we see in those situations, oftentimes with a strep throat, for example, or a viral illness in a child or a young adult, doesn't lead to death. But if you paint that picture in a 55, 65, 85-year-old who has other disease processes, those things that we often see as, and and what we call normal as physicians, fever of 101, heart rate of 110 or 115, in a 65-year-old is not typically something that we would just look at, see in the office, and send out without some follow-up. And those folks get into trouble. So it's, it's sneaky. It can present without fever, without any other symptoms. Patients can have pain, feel weak, feel like they have the flu or were hit by a train, and three or four four days later, be dead. All right. So, you know, those people hearing us are saying, you know, I've heard of sepsis, but I don't really know what it is, hence the silent killer. Yes. Uh, What is sepsis? Well, you know, sepsis has a a fairly well-defined definition uh, that that really comes from the CDC, and, and the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services has jumped on board with that and really has given us a directive with this definition. So sepsis is what we find when we see two of four inflammatory signs or symptoms, and those can be fever, shortness of breath, elevated respiratory rate, elevated heart rate, and one that we don't see with our eyes, but we check with a blood test, an elevated white blood cell count or a low white blood cell count. So by definition, it's two of those fours, it's two, two of those four, sirs, excuse me, with source of infection, somebody could have pneumonia with those, a urinary tract infection or an ulcer on the skin, a skin infection, or a suspect source. So if some patient comes into the office or the ER and has a cough, but their chest X-ray looks normal and they have a fever and an elevated white count, by definition, that patient meets the definition of sepsis. So it's, it's fairly well defined uh, by the federal government and most authorities but it's, it's fairly elusive because 10 per, up to 10% of the time, patients who are septic can present without fever, without elevated heart rate, and without shortness of breath, up to 10% of the time. But other than the elevated uh, white blood cell counts, as, as you just described, yes. many of those symptoms are common with many illnesses. Co- that's correct. And if, if I go out here into your hall and run up and down the stairs five times... I will have an elevated respiratory rate, 
and an elevated heart rate. I could do that one time. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe just if we just get up from the chair here, you know. Yeah, exactly. And and so what what does it take? Uh, It takes a team of experts who have had the training and experience in the trench. I was in the military, so I enjoyed Mm -hmm. listening to your your previous military um, uh, uh, interview, and I I respect and appreciate everything our military has done for us, so thank you. Uh, But it it can, and that's why it's elusive, and and physicians need to think, as I was saying, you need a team of experts to look at this, digest it, tease apart, sleuth it out, chest x-ray, physical examination, check the urine, check the skin. You need to do a thorough skin evaluation, any recent bug bites, tick bites, et cetera. So it, it really takes a diagnostician to determine, is this a normal elevation in heart rate or a physiologic response, or is it a pathophysiologic, something abnormal that the body is responding to in an abnormal way. All right, so you just described what could be a couple causes, but let's talk about that. Causes of sepsis. Yes, so, you know, as a physician or a clinician, we oftentimes think of three different causes of sepsis, bacterial infection, like a strep or a staph infection, a viral infection, like a virus that can cause the common cold, or the flu, influenza is a virus, or a fungal infection. So even general yeast infections, candidal-type infections, other type, you may have heard of aspergillosis, those type of, all three of those types of infectious agents, bacterial, viral, and fungal, can lead to sepsis, sepsis syndrome, septic shock, and death. And so we typically see those present in four very common ways. And we just start from the head and work our way down. So we see those present in the lung as pneumonia, skin infection, any type of skin infection from any three of those types of agents, gastrointestinal or bladder, urinary tract infection. So those are the four most common types of infections we see with probably at our system, we see more commonly urinary tract and pneumonia presenting uh, with, with sepsis type presentations. And interestingly enough, folks think, hey, Sepsis is usually a hospital issue, isn't it, doctor? No, up to 80%. This is most recent CDC statistics from 2015, 2016. Up to 80% of patients who are septic come in from the community and present to the hospital or a doctor's office. Uh, Scott, it's also interesting. I just read an article the other day. I, I was unaware of this, that only 40%, 47% of adults in the United States who were polled in 2016 knew what sepsis, what the de- definition of sepsis was. Hence, reason we need that's, a national that's why awareness. That's yeah. why, why we're talking about it. We were uh, talking ahead of time before the program today, and uh, the two of us have uh, personal connections to this. I, my stepfather, and I can describe, the, it was like something I had never seen. This was back in 1999. Died, um, just went in the hospital one day, thought he had a flu, um, had gotten a shot for pain in his knee the day before. Uh, body swelled, uh, was oozing. It just, it, it was horrible. And he, you know, hung on for like a month, but uh, uh, died a, a horrible death. You, your son, and now my stepfather was 62 at the time. Your son was much younger, 15. Yes, my, my son Aaron, uh, it's kind of an emotional uh, thing for me. He, I remember it was his birthday, December the 3rd, and uh, he was sick a couple days before that, had a fever, 102, 103 at home. Um, I examined him. He looked good otherwise. I thought, hey, he's got influenza. He's got a viral illness. Two days went by. He felt better. 
uh, went to school and two days later was in the hospital with pneumonia in both lungs. Uh, he had mycoplasma pneumonia, which is a bacterial pneumonia. He was admitted to a community hospital for a week and then transferred to Hershey Medical Center uh, for, and was there for a week and out of school for six weeks. Um, many times I thought he was going to die. How was he treated? He, he was uh, treated with aggressive antibiotics, IV fluid, and uh, oxygen therapy to support him. Uh, and I'm thankful that he was young. Uh, if he would have been 50, 60, or 70, he, he would have died. Yeah. Uh, and I, I looked at him one time. He was breathing at 44 times a minute and on six liters of oxygen. And I, I just, you know, was, when are we going to be on a ventilator here? And what's what's going to happen next? Fortunately, he pulled out of it. He's had a complete 100% recovery, which patients who survive sepsis oftentimes have a very good recovery. Um, but again, he you know he presented with fever. He was short of breath. He was weak, not eating and drinking for days, uh, and that's oftentimes how patients present. And then they also develop. I think you talked about your father-in-law swelling up, having kidney uh, problems as patients get sick the infection ravages all of the vascular system. So they develop kidney failure very commonly, and that progresses into a higher risk of death. It's got the death rate with sepsis. Sepsis is a spectral disorder, so it really define it in three different spectrums or avenues. We have sepsis. A lot of folks refer to that as simple sepsis. Ah, I'm a little fever, a little heart rate. I don't feel good, but they get better. They're fine. They don't need to be admitted to the hospital. They are, they're even seen in the ER oftentimes, given some fluids, some antibiotics, and discharge. Uh, severe sepsis, usually we have an organ system that's failing. They need oxygen. The lungs are failing. The kidneys are failing. And finally is the shock, the third phase of sepsis, where blood pressure is dropping. Patients aren't perfusing, uh, altered mental status, unconscious states, need ventilators, dialysis. And that's kind of what you were describing with, with your, your stepfather or your father-in-law. No, excuse stepfather, me, yeah, Your stepfather. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was horrible. I mean, it was a month. We went... Where he was in the hospital, and just what you described—that uh, uh, he had flu-like symptoms—and the next day, I'm hearing that uh, there's a possibility he's not going to make it. Yes, and uh, it, it, it was that quick. I want to talk about some other things here in the last few minutes. The, the treatment and early goal-directed therapy. What's that? Oh, that's. I, I'm glad you you brought that up. We don't want to forget that. Um, in the late '90s, early 2000s, a doctor out in the Midwest, Dr. Emmanuel Rivers. Um, really was the, the first to look at early goal-directed therapy and, and document it and, and see how well it, patients responded to this. And, and what it incorporated was um, early defining of the disease with aggressive follow-through and therapy. And, it, and it's fairly simple. We use the mnemonic CAF at Pinnacle Health, which is uh, where I'm a physician at, and we've had some great success. We've reduced sepsis death um, in the last year by 40%. And what that equates to is about 80 to 100 patients' uh, lives saved in a year, which is phenomenal. And we, we've done that through early goal-directed therapy, which Dr. Rivers really coined through uh, one of his studies. And it, it looks at getting patient, looking at patients who are septic and, and ordering blood cultures, cultures, giving them antibiotics if indicated, uh, checking a lactic acid, was, which is a blood test or a barometer, that's the L in CAF, uh, to see how really how severely ill are they on that spectrum of sepsis to severe sepsis and then on to septic shock. And then the F of CAF is aggressive fluid rehydration. Uh, 
with a patient who's going into severe sepsis and septic shock, every hour that passes is almost an 8% increased risk of death. So we, you know, historically in trauma, we called it the golden hour of getting, scooping a patient out of the throngs of death. And it's very similar in sepsis. So we use this early goal-directed therapy, which we've coined CAF. I, I can't take the credit for that. One of our nurses at the West Shore Hospital uh, came up with that and developed a campaign on that, which we've supported her on. And that's cultures, antibiotics, checking a lactic acid, and aggressive fluid therapy. You know, something you just said a few minutes ago is one of the reasons I wanted to do this program is that there are so many people who are unaware of sepsis. Then you hear those numbers. People listening today are hearing this and say, wait a minute, I've had some of those uh, some of those symptoms in the past. How do we educate people more? And it sounds as if the medical community even needs a little more education as well. Nail right on the head. Yeah, both, really. So we really need to educate in, in two avenues. Um, c- clinicians don't want to work in a protocolized system typically, but we need to have some cookbook and protocol around things that are elusive and have a high death rate like sepsis. So protocolizing these processes, nurse-driven protocols, the folks who check the vital signs initially see the patient, the triage folks, they need to be empowered to really bring this information to the doctor or the nurse practitioner or PA. We use NPs and PAs, advanced practice clinicians. They uh, work very well, and and I have the utmost respect for those folks. So absolutely educating the clinicians, educating the the, uh, patients or the folks that are non-clinical, the laymen, and understanding some some big keys, some take-homes here would be if someone's sick for more than a day, fever, they're not eating, drinking, they, they should be seen. And not, not at the first moment of an illness, unless there's other critical elements. But, uh, you know, if someone's not getting better, they have altered mental status, profound diarrhea, you know, more than four or five bouts of loose stools in a day, you need to be checked. And, and some patients are vigilant, but others will wait two, three, five days. You wait five days into an illness, it's too late. So ongoing symptoms of diarrhea, high fever, dehydration, not eating, drinking for more than a day to 36 hours, altered mental status is a big one. Weakness, you feel like a train hits you, altered mental status. And you, and you have to call your family doc. Hey, what's going on? Get in, be seen, be evaluated, get your vital signs checked. Just some basic things to see what your trend line is doing. Trend line is critical. And by the way, we have uh, more information on sepsis. Uh, there's a, a website, uh, National uh, Sepsis Awareness Month, and uh, we have a link on our website, WITF.org. Uh, Dr. Thomas Stoner is uh, with uh, Pinnacle Health and uh, the Osteopathic Hospital. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Scott, thanks. It's, my, it's been my pleasure. It's always something that uh, we like to uh, bring something like this that doesn't get the attention that it should. When you hear those statistics, it really should. Good. I'd like to bring that to your attention. Uh, coming up on tomorrow's program, bail reform and a new book on uh, Pennsylvania, Simon Cameron. That's on tomorrow's program. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.